1: everyone to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today is a gentleman who dives deep into the world of CONCACAF and has detailed match summaries of games you might not know even took place like Hades U23s playing an amateur Mexico national team. That's how I'm phrasing that. It's John Arnold. Hi John, thank you for being here.
2: Hey, my pleasure. Good to be here.
1: So is it is it the amateur Mexican national team or is it a team of amateurs that were like subbing in for a Mexican team?
2: It is the Mexico fan national team. That is is who went to Port-au-Prince and played Haiti's U23 before they they went to Olympic qualification. The thing is, it it, it was a crazy story when I wrote it, but the thing that makes it even crazier is like basically a week later, the real senior Belize national team went to play the real senior Haiti national team and got stuck up. I mean, like their boss was held hostage by armed gunmen. Not Mm -hmm. a good situation. Um, And Haiti's in a rough patch right now. But the Mexican fans came out okay. Well, they got destroyed on the field, but they they were they were safe and sound. So
1: that that is definitely good by comparison. Uh, I read about that in in uh, getting CONCACAF, which which you've been doing. When did you start uh, doing doing that?
2: yeah I started about a year ago I sent i guess uh two weeks ago was the year anniversary i you know the pandemic was terrible is, is terrible for everyone um, for a lot of different reasons and of course like people suffered much more serious things than I did but I left my job at goal, which was like a nice stable staff writing job at a soccer publication. And I put in my notice in February, and my last day was at Rudy Gobert Day, the, uh, the the NBA shut down. And, and I think then when we all kind of in the US realized like, oh, coronavirus is going to affect our lives in a very negative way. So I launched getting CONCACAF and uh, to have an outlet to kind of tell those stories because a lot of media budgets were going away. And, you know, even, even in the best of circumstances, it's not like a lot of editors are knocking down my door necessarily to write about the Haiti U23 national team or, you know, Belize or whoever. So, uh, yeah, I started that to have an outlet to tell those stories that I think are important and I think are worth telling. So, yeah, it's it's a little over a year old now.
1: And and it's it's got, like, great, uh, basically up-to-date match r- reports and, like, like things that are going on. It seems like it's also a thing that people enjoy for betting, <laughs> which is not a thing we, we tend to talk yeah. about on the show, but it does seem like it may be in the same way that people covering maybe, like, Lesser covered bat like NCAA basketball programs might maybe like give you an edge. It seems like some people are using it for that as well.
2: It does seem like some people are using it for that. I don't recommend that, I am often <laughs> wrong. But uh, if that's no, I mean, legitimately, it's like it, I, I want to tell these stories and give info on these teams that like people don't know that much about, but it's a national team, you know, everyone in. Guyana wants Guyana's national team to do well and it's worth mm-hmm. kind of telling those stories and focusing in on on whatever they are and I do think it gives kind of tipsters the edge but I certainly wouldn't like I said I I, I don't recommend it but you can yeah. use it for betting info if you want to
1: you can but uh for our purposes what I tend to use it for aside from just entertainment is like the stories that I want to know about but my Spanish is so poor uh <laughs> it has Gotten even worse since my like two years of high school Spanish, uh, so that I like if I'm reading an article, it's usually Google Translate, and even then you're missing a lot of the details. And so, a story like the uh, Costa Rica, like the situation with the Costa Rica national mm-hmm. team, which I'd like to know more about, like that's one that maybe you'd hear about, you'd be able to find some Spanish language articles. But I think being able for me to be able to read your coverage and then go from there if I want to has been so useful in keeping me up to date with like things that are happening to major rivals to the U.S. men's national team, as well as to maybe potential future rivals to the U.S. men's national team.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's where it started. You know, I I, I am American. I'm from the U.S. I, I enjoy watching U.S. national team play and and have covered the team for a while. And I always thought it was interesting that there wasn't a lot of information out there on some of these opponents, even though, you know, you look at like, Pick up a Gazetta or whatever in Italy when they're playing whoever, England, Ireland, and and you're going to have the 11 and you're going to have what's going on and you're going to have how they're doing in league. And I don't know that we really have that, unfortunately, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's growing and maybe it's getting there, but hopefully getting CONCACAF can kind of help fill some of those gaps as well.
1: I I would assume it will. So I want to ask you about Costa Rica. I'll ask you a little bit about maybe the U23 Olympic qualifying. uh, Sigh. uh, Later on. But I'm going to move us away from that. I want to talk about slightly happier stuff. Can we talk about uh, like World Cup qualifying for a moment, which has begun in CONCACAF? And I actually want to focus in on some of the teams that maybe... Uh, We haven't talked about as frequently, at least on this show, a team like, say, Curacao, who started off World Cup qualifying in strong form, uh, a 2-1 win over Cuba and a 5-0 win over St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I always want to call them St. Vincent, but I'll give them the full billing here. Uh, Their most recent squad for Curacao included many young players born in the Netherlands, uh, and then also like Vernon Anita, who I think made three appearances for the Dutch national team way back when. Now he started both of their matches in qualifying. How have they been able to bring in these players? What has been this sort of effort to start bringing in players that maybe have a connection, either were born there but have played in the Netherlands their whole lives or were born in the Netherlands, played for Dutch teams, but are now considering playing for Curacao?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, they're managed by Goose Hiddink. And yes, that That one. helps. Uh, which <laughs> does help. But I think the idea is that it will help. Um, these are his first two games. The process... From kind of my understanding, and this is a relatively new country as well, they used to play together as the Netherlands Antilles uh, with Bonaire, who now is a separate national team and everything. But the process started, they hired Patrick Kluivert, and then he got sort of lured back into European football. And a guy named Remco Bicentini took over. Um, And and he kind of started the process of bringing in some of these guys, guys who will be familiar to MLS fans like Eloy Room. Cuca Martina, uh, and Leandro Bakuna, and kind of just said, hey, this is going to be a serious project. We're going to get you guys back across for every single game Kurosawa plays. You want to compete in the Gold Cup. They had a really formative experience at a tournament in Thailand called King's Cup that I've never really heard about other than that, but they kind of cited as something that was pretty important for them. And even when the Caribbean Cup was happening, uh, they also were able to win one of those. So it, it's been a process it has been in in motion for a while. What I think they're trying to accomplish currently and, and with Hiddink at the helm is convincing even more eligible players that not only should they represent this country because it'll be fun and it's a good experience and it's nice to cross the Atlantic and be on a beautiful island for a week every couple of months, but also that you really could make the World Cup. And I think like Hiddink, just his name lends some credence to that idea but also just the, the success breed success idea that Curaçao you know, made it to the knockout stage of the Gold Cup last time around. They did really well in Nations League, nearly won the group, fell just short against Costa Rica. And now if you can add in players that are eligible, that haven't yet declared for Curaçao, that haven't started playing for the national team, you really could see a team that, that could complicate things for maybe not Mexico or the U.S., although maybe – but certainly for a mid-tier, maybe CONCACAF team like a Honduras, like a Costa Rica, you know, it, the competition is going to increase. And I think that they're a couple maybe pieces away, a couple recruits saying yes, away from being a true contender to make even the 2022 World Cup without the expansion or at least getting in that playoff. So it's a fascinating project. The qualification's off to a good start. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them in the octagonal, at the very least.
1: Uh, nor nor I, uh, especially with Gus hitting there. Uh, Is that more of a coup for the Curacao program or is that more of a reclamation project when it comes to the hiring of Gus Hiddink?
2: It's a little weird because he Remco Bisantini told me, we had a a nice chat, he's a really good guy, Um, he kind of expected to try and be the one to take Curacao out of the World Cup. And he had asked Hiddink and a couple other managers for kind of a mentorship role. And something happened and some lines, I don't know if got crossed or what, but Hiddink got announced as a national team coach and Remco Bicentini found out via the media. It was an ugly situation that got resolved in courts uh, last, I guess it was November, November of 2020. But he's now kind of moving on and I think a good coach to look for if you're a CONCACAF or or MLS team even. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and then you have Hiddink who... Look, I mean, the guy, uh, I don't know what his motivations are for taking the job, but I do know that its he's a guy who's had success taking teams to the World Cup. And, you know, I, I think that like kind of is the one thing that a guy like Remco Bicentini couldn't do. And now Kurosawa's has kind of checked even that box with their managerial selection. So I think recruitment will be a, an important part of his job, but also the fact that once you get those players and they already have a tactical base, that's much higher than, or at least much more established at playing a certain style than like a lot of a lot of countries in CONCACAF, right? Because you have so many guys that are eligible from the Ajax youth system, from the AZ youth system, from uh, Rotterdam, Feyenoord, Rotterdam, you know, like from these youth systems that. Crank out good Dutch footballers. So, when, you, when a new guy comes to the national team, they usually are able to slot in pretty easily and understand a tactical idea that maybe is a bit more modern than some of the opposition they're facing. Certainly, was the case against Saint Vincent and the Grenadines in Cuba this first window.
1: Mm-hmm. And those players that are coming in, like I, I apologize if this is like too easy of an explanation or even not an explanation, but I am wondering, like. When it comes to CONCACAF Nations getting European players to commit to playing for their national team, for that national team, obviously these players have a connection to Curacao either from their parents or grandparents or maybe they were born there. But, but I do wonder, like, how much do you think it has to do with Curacao being... I, I've never been there, but every photo I've seen makes it seem like it's a pretty nice place to be. I feel like that is a selling point versus maybe other locations that wouldn't be quite as desirable.
2: I agree with you. My perspective changed on kind of the dual national issue, if you want to call it that, when I went to Curaçao. You might be saying like, wow, this guy knows a lot about Curaçao. Yeah, I got to go there and, and reporting and, and, and did a tri- did a reporting trip and like did multiple stories on them. So um, when I talked to the guys, they were really, really thrilled to be representing Curaçao. And I think like a lot of it comes from you know, I think the a lot of the immigrant experience from my understanding, and I'm not an immigrant, but, you know, run in some circles with a lot of Latinos in the U.S. and even, you know, speaking to these guys in Curacao in the Netherlands and some of the other kind of big migration patterns, some of the other Caribbean islands to England, you know, I've been able to talk to a lot of people about this it seems like there's always kind of a longing for for the homeland, right? Like a longing to belong or to understand what your parents or grandparents are trying to communicate to you about the place that they're from and and maybe a frustration at the lack of ability to connect. And now all of a sudden you're not only able to travel to this place multiple times during a year and and get paid to do it and have your trip paid for, but also you are representing that country. You're putting that that crest or that flag over your, your heart and singing the national anthem and I think it really is for a lot of these guys a connection. I'm not saying there's not a couple guys that are a bit mercenary about it, that are just going to do it because they can make the World Cup, or sure, Curacao in in its specific cases is incredibly beautiful. But there's also dual nationals from CONCACAF all the time who are going to places that perhaps are not as, uh, you know, as as sparkling and as beautiful as as Curacao. You know, the El Salvador U23 team just got Enrico Hernandez. Who actually is also from the Netherlands, he's Salvador and Dutch. He played for the U23 team and I think has a bright future for the senior national team as well. He's only 20 years old, and plays for Vitesse, and I think could really be a key piece for La Selecta going forward. So I think it obviously is probably a case by case situation, but you know, it doesn't hurt that Curacao is a great place to visit. But Enrico Hernandez will be just as proud to go to El Salvador and, and represent El Salvador as some of these guys will be to go to Curacao.
1: And along the same lines as Curacao, would you say Sur- Suriname are in a similar position, maybe not quite as far along? Uh, they started qualifying in good form. They got a 3 0 win over the Cayman Islands, a 6 0 thumping of Aruba. But their latest squad features a lot of Dutch born players making their debuts. Uh, that includes, I believe, new team captain Ryan Donk, who now has two appearances and a goal. So well done to him. But it feels like another sort of situation in which they are, are, are finally starting to bring in some of those players. I always go with Clarence Seydorf, I believe, being born in Suriname as mm-hmm. sort of the, the big what if. And I'm imagining that's maybe what they're looking at now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more actually uh Suriname descendant players. Part of the reason that the Calvary is kind of arriving now and they played an entirely new midfield in that first qualifier. They literally had zero caps between them and, you know, still were quite good and, and composed and everything. Uh, there's been a political change there. A, a president who had been there for a long time lost an election. Even before he lost last year, there were some sort of changes. I hope to tell more of the story either on my newsletter or if someone, a newspaper or magazine editor is listening right now, I'd be happy to tell that story for uh, money. But, um, you know, the, the, there are a lot of guys who have been wanting for a long time to do this uh, project similar to what Kurosawa is doing. and now you see a lot of them actually being able to arrive because they're getting their Suriname passports. So, yeah, you had uh, Ryan Donk, great name, but but also like a really experienced player with Galatasaray, mm-hmm. flexible player, can yep. play in central midfield or center back, which in CONCACAF is huge because you kind of need good players, I think, in both those positions. Uh, you had three guys arrive for only the second game that are also really good. Florian Hussbund, I'm not sure how to say that. I said it wrong. Uh, Tijon Cherry, you know, those are two new recruits as well. They have only one cap now, but they're going to get a lot more. Vorner Hahn, the goalkeeper, plays for Anderlecht. I think he's their number one probably going forward for quite some time. And even some more familiar guys like Roland Alberg, who used to play for the Union. Kelvin Leardam, uh, formerly with the Sounders, now with Inter Miami. They're also new recruits and new new uh, new faces in the squad. Um, There's still some good, talented, kind of uh, domestic-grown players. Um, Fiter Viter is a, a real standout in CONCACAF. He killed it in Nations League. Evenzo Camvalis, uh, also really, really good player, uh, attacker. And then uh, Nigel Hasselbank, who is uh, Jimmy Floyd's uh, nephew, okay. is also uh, kind of helping lead the line there. So it's a team that absolutely is kind of embarking upon the same project as Curacao. Like you said, not as far along, but I think the recruits are arriving kind of fast and furious there. And Dean Goree leading the project who's kind of a known name. And his wife was on a real housewife. So uh, he's the less famous of the two, but also like a sort of famous name that I guess sort of in a, in a light version of like a Patrick Cliver to go uh I think has some fair uh, credence, I guess, or, or credentials that players buy when he's trying to recruit them to play for the national team.
1: Well, I look forward to, to the real players of Suriname. That should be a, <laughs> a fun Bravo reality TV show. Mike, my, my, my Operating assumption, which I welcome you to destroy, is that both of these national teams have like well-organized FAs that are out there sort of doing aggressive recruiting and doing a good job of keeping up the communication and facilitating some of these dual nationals coming over. But then I think about Jamaica, who are sort of doing the same thing. We had Andre Gray come in. They had, I think, what, six or seven European players making their debuts for Jamaica and simultaneously... The team is in the middle of a feud with their FA. So that seems to stand against the idea that we do have like sort of organized FAs making this happen. Is it a case by case basis or is it just sort of that like we've got more people wanting to play international football? So we've got more national teams getting stronger. I
2: think that some of this is simply the fact that a lot of these nations are playing more games. I think the Nations League setup, while a lot of US fans are kind of iffy on it, Mexico fans seem to outright dislike it or hate it. The littler teams are forced to play games, which is a good thing. You know, when you show up for a World Cup qualification and get eliminated every four years, you can kind of shrug off obligations to be actually a good team. But whenever you're playing multiple games, a lot of the time, it's embarrassing to keep losing, right? And that's not the case with like Curacao or Jamaica, but You know, I I think like some of these smaller teams that have embarked on recruitment campaigns have done so because they need to get better and the the soccer on the island is not where it needs to be, right? So I definitely think as far as FA competence, it is a case-by-case basis. Curacao, you know, like they've got their own political stuff like every other FA does, weird elections last time around, but – yeah I mean they're like pretty well funded and pretty organized, and that's why you see these guys coming in and Suriname, I think is sort of the same situation. Jamaica, like you said, can be a bit of a mess, but there's also like it's, it's almost like an oversimplification, but like you think about how crazy like your listeners are and and some of the the fans of the u s national team are and even like big soccer right people know these guys are out there guys want to be in the mix or want to be talked about it can be valuable to be. A, a dual national or an international player, right on the on the transfer scene, or even just the fact that it's like, yeah, you can finally, you know, wear wear your country's jersey. So guys kind of like to let people know that they can represent those teams, and I think sometimes it's legitimately as simple as, oh, this guy, this message board post says this guy is eligible for our country. Is he really? Let's call him up. Let's call up his mom, and then they find out whether he is or not, and if he is. Let's start the process. Let's get the papers going because he could improve our team, right? So I definitely think that you see that more competent FAs find more success and have more kind of diamonds in the rough unveiled. But you don't have to be uh, a beautifully functioning organization to uh, get some of these guys, which is good news to most FAs in CONCACAF because, yeah.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com
1: slash courtside to learn more. Who are those sort of more competent FAs when you're looking at CONCACAF as a whole? If you had to maybe list a couple.
2: Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's I that that's where I am as well. It's a tough one to go through because like I would have said Costa Rica, but then reading about them being in the middle of a, a a lawsuit doesn't really do that. Mexico always has issues, though they remain pretty strong. The U.S. obviously has plenty of its own. Like Canada, could Canada, Canada be the answer?
2: Yeah, in Canada, you know, with with uh, you know they kind of went from strength to strength in a way with Victor Montagliani becoming the president of CONCACAF and not missing a beat, still growing, still launching the CPL. Bermuda is actually pretty good, I think. Uh, You see some of that reflected in uh, their Gold Cup success, I guess you'd call it, you know, like in some of the Nations League games that they were able to to compete in. I would have said Panama five years ago, they seem to have taken a dip. You also, I mean, you have to remember as well, Taylor, like the FIFA gate stuff, Cleaned house for a lot of people that it needed to 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 clean house for, but you haven't necessarily had enough time pass. I think for kind of the bureaucracy or political structure to be built back up into a level where it can start to be kind of fully functioning again, right? Like four or five years, yeah, we could say that's kind of a long time. It is not really a long time in the kind of sportocrat governance world, and I think that like a lot of the countries who might be able to be well run FAs. After the, the issues like Costa Rica's example where it's like Eduardo Lee, you know, seems like he wasn't a great guy, but he's gone now, right? But he's only been gone for a few years. So, I mean, I think like a lot of places are having to kind of undo some of the things that were done and hopefully get things moving in the right direction. But I, I do think it'll take some time before we have those clear leaders where we say, ah, yeah, these guys are doing it right. Let's all follow that example.
1: Trinidad would be one of those that I guess then comes to mind for me. They I got what what a win and a draw I think in the opening rounds of their qualification, but prior to that had not had a good run of form, had, had been losing pretty consistently aside from that one game in Cuba. Uh, does does the the kind of house cleaning and the situation with Jack Warner is that sort of what you're talking about? Does that factor into it that the this sort of change at the top and the uncertainty at the top has that led to the sort of downturn in form for the national team or are there other factors there as well?
2: I do think it plays a big role because Jack Warner gets the boot and you have this power vacuum and then how it gets filled is a big question. And some of the subsequent presidents haven't been able to uh, make any headway, basically, I would say, properly fund the female side of the game. That's something that Trinidad and Tobago has had a lot of issues with, despite the fact that there's a lot of really talented women players there. Um, and, And you saw the chaos, I think, really... Factor this time because last year there was a uh, properly, at least from my understanding, elected FA board. That then FIFA said, "Nah, actually, you know, Trinidad and Tobago, you need to pay your debts." The new board basically said, "We've been here for like two months. Give us a second to get get our feet under us." And FIFA said, "No, we're putting in a normalization committee." And that that sort of saga only got resolved in. October November then you combine that with the difficulty of playing in a pandemic Trinidad and Tobago trying to stay as low covid as possible a lot of these islands are either covid free or have very very low numbers but once you get a couple of cases even Curaçao right now is is going through a bit of an outbreak that is threatening to overwhelm the small hospital systems that they have on these islands so Trinidad and Tobago the minister of health basically says you guys can't train in this facility you have to use this facility if anybody leaves the country they have to do this you know Regulations that I think are well intentioned right and and probably should be applauded but make it really difficult for a national team to to compete so they're a team that you know they've been in really bad form like you mentioned, and then uh, they had some logistical difficulties, the federation difficulties I think it all comes together and does have a knock on effect for the players, and I think that's part of the reason you see them underperforming and I wouldn't be surprised if even if they are able to get out of this group the current group that they're in, if they then lose the uh, two-legged uh, second-round playoff against uh, the winner of Group A, I believe, which could be El Salvador, could be Antigua and Barbuda, um, could be Granada, could be Montserrat. Um, but then you also see them, I think, having trouble getting out of that. And then if they make it even to the final, I, I don't know. I, I think like that's a perfect yeah. example of a country where if the organization the administration were better, the team would also be better.
1: Uh, and then I think when we talk about the organization getting better, it seems like that's the case with with uh, Cuba. But again, I welcome you to uh, dissuade me of that notion. Can you explain what Cuba's new policy is when it comes to national team players and how it came to be? Uh, or even just what a, brought about that change? It sounds like manager Pablo Sanchez played a pretty, a pretty big role in getting things adjusted a little bit. Not fully, but a little bit.
2: Yeah, I, I, I would hesitate to say things are changing or going in the right direction on the administrative level, Mm -hmm. but uh, there is a big change and and I'm happy to explain it. Basically, Cuban players who did not run afoul of the Cuban government are allowed now. Previously, any player for the Cuban national team, and I think this extends to all sports, and I know they're doing some changes with baseball and volleyball as well. Previously, if you – were a Cuban who, you know, let's take a, an example because it's going to be easier. Onel Hernandez, he's a Cuban born player, but when he was three years old, he and his mother and his German father went to Germany. He grew up in Germany, started to play in the German second division, then moved up and then it was in Norwich City. he had never been able to represent the Cuban national team because he wasn't under the governmental umbrella. He didn't develop in that way. So, he he wasn't called in. This window, and they've been trying to do it for a little while, and the pandemic has made it so they haven't had games. But this window, they said, players like Onel Hernandez, there's a couple others, about five others, and even players like Jorge Luis Corrales, who plays at FC Tulsa right now, who left Cuba for the U.S., but had government permission. He didn't defect. He had government permission, and then had been stopped getting called to the national team. They got called back in. So basically, all that to say... Cuba has its foreign-based players now for the first time. They're eliminated from the World Cup 2022. But I do think if they're able to bring those guys back in consistently, they should lift the level of the whole team, not just because they're better, but because the other players will start to, to understand what it takes to be a professional, which right now you really have no idea what it's like outside of the Cuban system. So it could be a really, really big positive I I suspect the door is a little more open than it was maybe last month for a guy like Ozzy Alonso to get in. But that'd be a pretty big governmental shift, uh, and I'd be surprised. But if the change is actually, you know, if it goes beyond simply allowing the international players and they say, ah, we're still not going to welcome our defectors back, but we're going to let a guy like Dariel Morejon, who's a 22-year-old fullback, defender for Cuba, if we're going to let him go play in Mexico or we're going to let him play in MLS you know that could be a game changer for cuba because right now the choices are basically play in the league system play where this uh, government agency kind of tells you to there's a few different places where players are kind of placed or defect and if if he didn't have to make that choice or i'm just using him as an example i don't know where his head's at but like if guys didn't have to make that choice you could see cuba i think reaching its potential in concacaf where is that potential I don't know, but it's it's better than what they're doing now.
1: And what they're doing now, if I read getting CONCACAF correctly, is having uh, Onel Hernandez show up during the game. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's CONCACAF, right? So, like, we already have all these weird factors. And then, like, uh, you know, something happens like a volcano closes an airport, right? That's what happened. Donel Hernandez was in Mexico City on his way to Guatemala for Cuba's two matches. They played one against Guatemala, and then one, they just used Guatemala as a neutral site. And for that first game, the game against Guatemala, they had to make some adjustments because the Guatemala City airport shut down. The flights out of Mexico got canceled, and so they got him on some sort of private vessel, and he showed up uh, during the first half. Warmed up, had the you know got his jersey on and and got tossed in for the very first time ever. Meeting a lot of those teammates, he played the second half of a World Cup qualification match against Guatemala. So it was a it was a difficult welcome, but uh, but yeah, he, he got it done.
1: Uh, and then of those uh, countries we've talked about or or any other uh, others that we haven't before we get to the actual qualifying as it is, like, who do you think is most likely to make that jump to consistently being in the octagonal or the hex or whatever it's going to be uh, consistently maybe making it to the knockout rounds of the gold cup that we haven't seen previously? We've seen Jamaica in there. We've seen uh, Costa Rica, the United States, Mexico, obviously. But uh, who do you think is most likely to make that jump? And basically, why is it Curacao?
2: No, I actually think it's Canada. And I, maybe that's boring, uh, and maybe you're already putting them in there. But I think, like, you know, I think I
1: probably was actually. But yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, the correct that's fair. Right. I mean,
2: because, yeah, I mean, like, US fans, I think, are pretty well acquainted with like what Canada has and can do. They didn't really get a chance to show it, I don't think, in this window. I mean, they took care of business where they needed to. And of course, you can only beat the team in front of you, as the cliche goes. But they did that emphatically. They beat by, by the yep. Bahamas or not the Bahamas, they beat Bermuda 5-1, they beat the Cayman Islands 11-0. So, you know, I I think when you look at like, and that's without Jonathan David, that's without, you know, a couple other players who they'll probably be able to rely on. I mean, maybe even like a guy like Derek Cornelius, or or for sure, I think uh, Buchanan from the Revs probably gets in um, to their senior team. So, you know, from that U23, and they they had to balance those two tournaments. But I think Canada, you know, they have a bright future. And then, and then, yeah, was right there with them. Um, I, I definitely think that they're in there. Maybe uh like a Dominican Republic could be could mm. be getting in the mix as well. Uh, and then Montserrat for like a tiny—if you want a tiny, tiny country—that's that's good. I they do. were yeah, they were ranked really, really poorly for a really long time, and then uh, they started recruiting players from England who have the uh, Montserrat heritage, and they drew El Salvador. So there you go.
1: Is that also the jersey I see floating around uh, frequently now? I feel like Montserrat have suddenly had a resurgence in their popularity.
2: Yes. Well, they, my understanding is, and I hope they're listening, uh, they sent like jerseys to like influencers and stuff. I didn't get anything, so I don't know what happened there. You get one, Taylor? <laughs> uh,
1: I did not, but I'm assuming that's because uh, I am, like, voice only and try not to show my face too much because nobody needs to see this. It's, I guess it's that's, face I for, mean, for, I don't for, know. You probably,
2: I don't. you probably look pretty darn good in an Emerald Boys kit. Come on, Montserrat. <laughs> Come on. I think it was actually their sponsor. And I am doing an article not to get a shirt. I, I want to get this on the record. Like, I was doing this article. I, I got proof. I've, I've sent out emails email sure, requests. Sure, sure. Sure, One sure, of sure. these newsletters is going to be, how CONCACAF, Nations League, you know, we talk about like how these teams playing games makes it so they need to, to do better on the field. But I think it's also raising their game. You see, uh, fashion-wise, I think you're seeing like better jerseys, cooler jerseys. Montserrat's absolutely in that category. So whenever you see that in the newsletter this weekend or next week, it's not because I'm just trying to get a jersey, but I will give people that want to send me a jersey my address so that's kind of where i'm at just to be honest but yeah they're looking good uh i like their shirts
1: Uh, do you think they're they're better equipped better outfitted than jamaica because i tend to think of jamaica as being the team that has the best kits in CONCACAF.
2: Mm, i can see that i think like the difference is it's a difference in tier right and montserrat can kind of put like a, a kind of uh Out there design on their shirt because it's like "Eh, yeah, you're Montserrat, right? Like you're you're you're. It is a different level. I I don't think Montserrat is going to be competing in World Cup qualification anytime soon. I don't think they're gonna. I think they'll make the Gold Cup, which is an accomplishment, but they're not going to win the Gold Cup or be in the final like Jamaica. So I guess you can take more liberties when you're a small a small team,
1: right? That makes a lot of sense good call uh, I hope you get a Montserrat jersey I do Thanks, uh, I, I hope you get one from every single one and then you can uh, rep <laughs> them at any given point and we do have lots of different teams that you could be repping because we're in that first stage of CONCACAF qualifying we've got 30 teams split into six groups I wanted to ask you who you think uh, the teams are that are most likely to make it to that next round uh, as John already said but I will say again we've got the top team from each group advancing then they play each other I believe is that home and away in the second round.
2: Hopefully. Hopefully it is. That'll be in June. So, you know, fingers crossed.
1: But right now, we're not having a home and away here. You've got so you've got your six, te- six groups, five teams in each, two games at home, two games on the road, and then top team goes through. Uh, let's look at the groups individually. I'll run through them in Group A. Right now, we've got Antigua and Barbuda on top, El Salvador, Granada, Montserrat, and U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, I have zero idea what's going to happen there because I have zero idea about most of those teams. John, if you're picking one to get out, who would it be?
2: I still have to go with El Salvador. I just mm-hmm. think they're probably going to pull it through, even though they don't look too inspiring. They also had a federation dispute uh, with some of their players. So if they get all those guys back, yeah, put them in.
1: All right. What about in Group B, Canada, Suriname, Bermuda, Aruba, Cayman Islands? Sounds like it will be Canada versus Suriname as the kind of deciding one there.
2: Yeah, that's that June 8th game. It's in Canada if, again, they can host, which I think would be pretty critical. Uh, I, I like Canada there just based on talent as well. I can't, you don't overlook Suriname. I've seen some Canada fans kind of make light of some of the predictions that Suriname and Bermuda were going to be a tough group. I still think Suriname could scare you, but Canada's going to win that group.
1: And will Kyle Lahren be our top scoring, top scorer in CONCACAF qualifying? I think he's got four right now.
2: Uh, yes. Although, like, there's some other guys who still need to play some of the the tiny, tiny teams. So, you know, yep. maybe some of those guys, like uh, like uh, Juninho Bacuna from, uh, from, Curacao, depending on where they play him, they've been playing him as kind of a false winger instead of a, a 10 or, a, or an attacking midfielder where I think he really excels. He could get some goals against the British Virgin Islands. So, eh, I don't know, maybe him.
1: <laughs> uh, speaking of Curacao, they're in Group C with uh, Guatemala, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Cuba and British Virgin Islands. So You said Cuba, uh, British Virgin Islands already eliminated. So, it seems like, again, it's going to come down to Curacao, Guatemala.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I give Curaçao the edge. Uh, again, this is like a home game there. They should be able to play it in Curaçao. Uh, I think they'll probably be able to, to see off Guatemala. Although Guatemala, it's like, you know, they're they're back on the rise, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 they had some rough years and they got suspended by FIFA. And I think they've kind of had to rebuild from that, but their rebuild is, is underway. So hopefully we see them again soon. I, I think it's like, it's nice to see Guatemala again, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I I agree with you entirely because that's the team I think of as, as being a sort of ever-present fixture in U.S. away games and qualifying and it being this sort of, not even a big rivalry, it's just one that I think of as like, oh yeah, Guatemala are a team that we have to play to get to the World Cup and it's going to be difficult. That obviously hasn't been the case more recently. and. I think we've talked about it on the show before. I read about it before doing this interview, and I'm still sort of confused what the issue was that led to Guatemala being suspended. Do you think you can give us a quick understanding of it?
2: Yeah, it's it's actually, I don't fully understand it either. Basically, FIFA gets really nervous whenever your government gets involved. And, you know, it seems like they're a lot more worried about that than sort of what exactly um you know where the money is going and those kind of things. So it's it's all about like who when are elections called, who's controlling the FA at what time. Very like sort of it, it seems like those are the kind of the only ways to get suspended by FIFA. The other one we have in CONCACAF is Haiti, which ugh, disgustingly their president has been accused, not convicted, but accused of horrendous uh crimes, sexual assault against players girls and women, um, that also gets you suspended, but it takes a really long time for it to happen. So those are the kind of the two ways Guatemala, I guess, thankfully, was in the category of election timing and who, who is a legitimate president and those kind of things. So there you go.
1: Wow. I didn't know that about Haiti at all. Uh, that is troubling because yeah, we've yeah. already talked about them twice in the show. No, in I mean, well... not I mean, ideal ways.
2: Yeah, I... There's a lot of things. I mean, it's a country that's that's struggling, right? It's a country that, that at its base has difficulty. Like the president came out a couple months ago, but in 2021 in like January and February said like, hey, we have an epidemic here of gang kidnappings. People are getting kidnapped for ransoms. It's just not a good situation right now. And and the president himself, I think is being accused or I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not well-versed enough on Haitian politics to say, but like my understanding is he either is being accused or actually has kind of overstayed his term limit. But then you look at like the Haitian FA and then things were just kind of ticking along well enough for no one to be too concerned. And then some journalism from um, the Guardian specifically picked up the article. Um, uh, There's a French reporter um, named Roman Molina, who dug into a lot of allegations that he was hearing um, and kind of exposed those things and brought them to light. And to FIFA's credit, like once those things were brought to light, they acted quite swiftly, but yeah, it's it's not a good situation. The normalization committee they named is somewhat inspiring. There's a former Canadian kind of like ceremonial, I guess, government official who used to hold a position that my understanding is, and Canadians are probably like totally laughing at me right now. But my understanding is that she used to kind of be the link between the Canadian government and the Queen. So, I mean, like someone who has experience dealing with tough situations before. So hopefully things get in the right direction there. And yeah, like
1: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. John, I also appreciate that you said you couldn't provide like much insight into Haitian politics I-, I feel like there's a chance you could give us some insight though which in and of itself is incredibly impressive I won't ask you about that though I'll just skip ahead to that group group E Nicaragua Belize Haiti Turks and Caicos uh Saint Lucia uh that's right we were in the uh,
2: picks for the group weren't we that went from like sports <laughs> talk radio standard to uh Haitian political like real quick
1: I mean that's honestly that's the like that's my type not that topic obviously but this is why I was really excited to have you on the show because <laughs> again I think there's so many national teams out there and federations trying to improve the quality of their game or trying to restore their programs or just get to that next level and I think it's just hard to talk about them all in a sort of singular format or a condensed format and and I think again you're doing a very good job of that it just it makes me I just want I don't know why I'm gushing so much other than just like reading about more of these teams it just made me really excited for World Cup qualifying it made me more excited for the Gold Cup a thing that I think is easy to sort of look down your nose upon but when it's teams really caring about are they going to make it and what that could mean for their federation and more people wanting to play for them either from the country or dual nationals like it just it reminds you that this stuff is important in a way that like I understand things to be important not not important in terms of like solving world poverty but in terms of (laughs) helping some people's lives improve I have to believe these things matter
2: no I absolutely agree I mean I think that's why like these stories are worth telling not just because they're fun and quirky and 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 enjoyable but like also because like these things should matter right it should and and look like when's the last time you wondered about Haiti's politics. When's the last time you thought about St. Vincent and the Grenady? It's like when, you know, it, like these are places that are in our region quote unquote, right? And we don't do a great job of thinking about them and I think soccer provides this prism for us to think about those places, which is really exciting. So I, I think it's Panama Group D. That's what I think.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank you for, for taking us back to Group D. Um, uh, yeah, that one is, oh wait, hold on, who have you got in Group E between Nicaragua, Belize and Haiti?
2: That one's tough because St. Lucia withdrew, uh, which Mm -hmm. was not greeted well by their uh, citizens or their team. They're protesting outside of the office of the FA in St. Lucia, which good. Like, we don't want you to withdraw from the World Cup. Get in these qualification games. Uh, I think Haiti has the edge because they still haven't played. Nicaragua, they've got a young, young Argentine manager named Juan Vida, who I think is – he's been able to call in camps because of the size of the country. He's been able to get players from some of the bigger teams uh, together and and they've done a lot of training and then they have a couple kind of new recruits as well. Again, going back to the theme of um, dual nationals, they've got a guy named Matias Belli who is born in Spain, but he spent most of his career in Norway where I think his dad is from. And I think his mom is from Nicaragua, if I'm not mistaken. So he scored, he got off the the ground against uh, Turks and Caicos in that, that beat down that they put on them. So Nicaragua was an interesting team, but I think you have to go with Haiti just because of the uh, history and kind of prestige of their national team. I mean, they made the Gold Cup semifinal, so uh, you have to kind of respect that. And uh, But yeah, I think that's another one where it comes down to one game and it's uh, that Nicaragua-Haiti game.
1: And then it sounds like it will be uh, the same case in Group D, where you've already said you expect it to be Panama. They are currently Panama, behind yeah, uh, they the look Dominican bad. Republic.
2: They look bad, but <laughs> they won their first two games. And I think they probably yeah. can beat the Dominican Republic just based on kind of the talent that, that Panama does have and players playing in big, big teams and big leagues. And uh, they got some stuff to sort out, but I, I kind of think they'll get it done before June.
1: And would the Dominican Republic be another nation uh, like the ones we've already talked about where you do have more dual nationals and more players, this time specifically from Spain, Mm -hmm. or maybe more inclined to come play for the DR?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're also seeing kind of some of the fruits of uh, already their youth process. They literally flew in a couple kids from that U23 team to play in qualification against Anguilla, and uh, a couple of them scored. Donny Romero is the one that sticks out to me. Uh, if they stick with our manager, Jacques Passi, he's a Mexican guy, but really, really, uh, you know, into like the Johan Cruyff, he was, he, re- he ran the Johan Cruyff Institute in Mexico. And so he has that kind of tactical school uh, behind his, his, his thoughts and his philosophies. He took over, I guess, middle of last year. And uh, I, I really think like, he's the kind of guy who, who a country like the Dominican Republic where baseball is probably the most important or is the most important sport and, you got other things going on. He's the kind of guy who maybe can can even get you an upset in something like Group D, right? Where maybe you do beat Panama and you top the group and go farther than you ever have in World Cup qualification. So uh, they're definitely another another kind of bright spot in this uh, in this region. And
1: that brings us to our final group, Group F, Saint Kitts and Nevis, uh, where that is one of those to your point about like this being our region and yet we don't have much familiarity. Like I could tell you some things about like Haitian Haiti's political history I could talk a little bit about St. Vincent and the Grenadines mostly I could talk about how they tend to play in a cricket stadium (laughs) St. Kitts and Nevis I don't think I could tell you a single thing but I could tell you that they're top of the group right now ahead of Trinidad (laughs) and Tobago, Guiana, Puerto Rico and the Bahamas
2: yeah that's a weird group because I think we talked about Trinidad and Tobago's struggles St. Kitts is not who I expected to take advantage Guiana was who I expected to take advantage and then they did not beat Trinidad and Tobago. You got Dave Sarachan managing Puerto Rico. So they only have one point. I don't think they're going to be able to make up the difference and get the results to go the way they need to go. It's kind of all there for the for everyone. I mean, if you're saying Kitts, you're like in dreamland, but you still have two tough games this next window. I, again, like sort of like the El Salvador principle, and I guess it's fitting that they would play each other in the next round. I'm going Trinidad and Tobago here. Even though they dropped a result this first window, I just don't really see who's going to beat them. And they they have like some really good players as well who I think individually can be uh, kind of too much for maybe other teams at this stage of qualification to handle. Although, you know, saying that, they still only drew Puerto Rico. So I'll go TNT and uh, El Salvador. And whoever loses that one, or excuse me, whoever wins that one, uh, that team, it's team six in the uh, octagon, just by mm-hmm. the numbers or whatever. That's going to be your easiest game, I think, in CONCACA.
1: Yeah, so we, that you, we set up here, I think, Trinidad and Tobago versus El Salvador, uh, Haiti versus Canada, and Panama versus Curacao. If if John is correct, and everybody should put all their money on it is what we established. <laughs> yes, but I do. do. Betting advice only. Go down.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tips only, baby. I'm one of those Twitter accounts now. <laughs>
1: Um, I wanted to go back to uh, a couple things that we talked about at the start, or I brought up at the start at least, uh, specifically the Costa Rica situation because they are a, a national team that I think of as just being ever-present and consistent, and uh, that that's one of those where I tend to end up doing the research when the U.S. is going to play them, and it is kind of hard to find like detailed information about the team aside from the, the kind of names you know, the names you've seen before, and so hearing about the ongoing... It's not quite a lawsuit, but it's a thing that's happening in court is how I'm going to phrase it. And then I'm going to turn it over to you to uh, explain the story in much better detail and much more succinct manner than I could.
2: Yeah, basically, this is, you know, I I think I even wrote in the newsletter that like after a lot of kind of ugly like World Cup qualification a World Cup, you know, you think about like France and South Africa, uh, Ireland, you know, like you think about these like famous... uh, (laughs) Debacles, <laughs> uh, like the you know, like international soccer debacles, and it like kind of plays out in the press, and like somebody puts a book out or whatever, right? Yep. This one unfortunately played out in the courts. This is uh, Kaylor Navas, Brian Ruiz, and Celso Borges. So basically, C- Costa Rica's kind of three biggest and I would say kind of most famous players uh, brought a lawsuit well, against uh, a couple Fede football officials basically saying that they had defamed them because in a radio interview uh, a year or two ago they said that the players hated Pinto, Jorge, Jorge Luis Pinto, the uh, Jose Luis Pinto, the manager at the time and who took them to that World Cup success and they said that basically they learned of a clause in Pinto's contract that if they lost three games straight the federation could rescind the contract. They could give him the boot basically. Which, first of all, is a terrible clause to put in a contract because uh, that's not good for anybody. But second, uh, the Federation officials had had said, I was going to say implied, but they straight up said that these players went to the Federation officials and said, look, if it means that we're done with this Joker, we're going to do it. We're going to lose these games. And of course, that's like a, a pretty... Uh, heavy thing to to you know throw at a professional sportsman, much less guys that are at the top of the game like Navas, Ruiz, and Borges. So they brought a suit. Uh, it got it got resolved in the, in the players' favor. I think they are owed you know some money, um, a fair like a fair amount of money. Uh, they were asking for a lot. I mean, it's, it's like typical lawsuit stuff. Like they were asking for. I'm not sure if it was dollars or euros or what, but like they were asking for millions and millions, and they got like a couple million. But you know, still pretty significant. Clears their name, obviously, um, and and yeah, I mean, it's just like it, it is interesting, Taylor, because I think like Costa Rica, we're talking about kind of the mix of political and sporting governance, and I think Costa Rica we always see as kind of the shining light. Where you, when you're looking at Central America, and you look at the difficulties that that Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala are having with migration and and you know hurricanes of the past year that didn't help anything, the pandemic that didn't help anybody. Uh, you know, it's always like, Oh, why can't they be more like Costa Rica? And, and it's the same on the, on the football level, right? Costa Rica standing out clearly the third best league in CONCACAF, <laughs> maybe the second best team on the national team level until the U S can, can prove it that they're, they're mm-hmm. uh, deserving of that number two wrong once again. Um, and a team in transition, you know, I think we saw against Mexico yesterday that there's some pieces there, like Navas will still be there. Should Brian Reese still be on the field? Probably not. Uh and, but you know that, that generation of U23s that the U.S. Uh, played in the in the Olympic qualification, you see a lot of promising players there. So I think in some ways they're looking like 2018 United States where they have the veterans, they have the familiar faces, and they have the up-and-comers. That donut in the middle where there should be four or five 28-year-olds in their prime just ripping it up, it's not quite there. So I think there could be some concern for them in this qualification cycle. But I guess what I was trying to get at is there are parallels between you know kind of the government side and the and the the football governance side where I think they're kind of held up as a shining light and they are doing better than a lot of their neighbors, but at the same time they're not without their issues.
1: So they're not without their issues. That seems to be a fair summary for pretty much every team in CONCACAF, uh, if not all of them. How are you then feeling about the uh, octi- octagonal, not the octagon? That's a different thing. <laughs> uh, like, like Especially from a U.S. perspective, which is obviously what most of our listeners are going to be concerned about. It seems to me like it is going to be more challenging, but the U.S. also seems more capable of handling it this time around. Where are you on the U.S.'s chances of qualifying based on everything we've talked about and everything we've seen so far?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm exactly where you are, Taylor. I think that the US should expect to qualify for the World Cup, but that should always be the case, right? Just like the US,
1: right? yep. this might
2: be a little too soon, but like should expect to qualify for the Olympics, even if they don't have their best team, right? But so, yeah. I think the Olympics also teach you or, or remind us the lesson that just because the US is way better, than they were two, three years ago doesn't mean that other teams are not also better than they were two, three, four years ago, right? So I think it should be, it should be tough, right? Which is the goal. The idea is not that it's easy to get to the World Cup. Maybe it has been in the past, in past cycles, you know, maybe in '98 or two thousand six or whatever, it wasn't that difficult to to make it, but it should be hard. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of the idea is that you're putting the best of the best into this tournament. So I think the US should feel optimistic because of their team, but not necessarily because the competition won't be there because Mexico has got a really good team. I just talked about Costa Rica, Jamaica. We mentioned the recruiting efforts. Honduras, eh, you know, like they've got some experience. They, they could be difficult. They've got this generation that the US wasn't able to see off at the Olympics. And then you got, you know, we think like a Curaçao coming in the mix, Canada, absolutely looking dangerous. So, the U.S. Should, should aspire to finish atop the group. They should aspire to, to make the World Cup. They should expect that, and they can reasonably expect that. But what you shouldn't expect is for it to be a cakewalk and be easy. I, I think, you know, as much as people want to hold up this narrative, I saw a lot of people after the Honduras game be like, oh, typical U.S. fans, like, thought they were going to roll Honduras. And it's like, I don't yep. – I think people were afraid of Honduras, but, like, with, like, kind of yep. a, a respect, not, like, a abject terror, right? And that's how you should feel about this qualification. Mexico is going to be tough. Costa Rica is going to be tough. These other teams are going to be tough, but that's the point of this. Like if it was easy to you make know. a world cup, uh, you know, St. Nevis would have already done it. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would agree if I knew where they were. Uh, you, you mentioned Costa Rica and Mexico there. Uh, Joe and I, when we were talking uh, in our review about that loss to Honduras, where I think Joe floated the idea, which has been, Uh, discussed many times before that maybe the U.S. needs to be playing more friendlies against CONCACAF opponents in CONCACAF in those countries. Uh, Costa Rica hosting Mexico, a 1-0 loss there, but you do imagine that gives maybe Mexico a little bit more familiarity, just a bit more comfort. Is that something you'd like to see the U.S. do, take advantage of those friendlies to to play more CONCACAF opposition, both at home and on the road?
2: Yeah, I I don't think they're gonna have much choice uh, because you know, it's it's uh, – you're going to be playing these teams in, like, Nations League. You're going to see them then. And, and then, you know, the UEFA schedule, the Commonwealth schedule is going to be packed, especially, you know, Commonwealth missed this window because of the pandemic. They don't have World Cup qualifying. Like, booking friendlies against Commonwealth teams is not going to be an option in the next – you know, until the, until the next World Cup cycle. Uh, Europe, I think, kind of the same. I, I don't know that they have much choice but to play CONCACAF teams. But the thing is, it's also much more lucrative and much easier to play in the U.S., Mexico, you're kind of citing them as a positive example, but they're the worst defender of this because they could be playing in Costa Rica. They could be playing in in Honduras or Jamaica or whatever, but they play in the U.S. because they have the contract with, with Sun to play five games in the U.S. every time, every year. So, you know, they're a team that is absolutely, when they get to the World Cup level, managers, Osorio himself, Martino, have mentioned, like, we need to go to top European teams. We need to go to top South American teams and play them in friendlies. But unfortunately, with the pandemic, the sort of things that it's done to the calendar, the things that it's done to international travel, I, I don't think it's feasible in the near term. In the long term, yeah, go for it. You, you got to get out as much as you can, I think, to have that challenge, to, to feel that that difficulty, to feel the heat of the fans and the-, and the literal heat of the weather sometimes, you know, down in Honduras especially. But I-, I see it being quite difficult to to really challenge the team with friendlies in the next year, two years.
1: Uh, uh, One question about Mexico for you, then a question about the Olympics, then uh, I will let you go. I appreciate you being so generous with your time, uh, John. Uh, Tata Martino in charge of El Tri, to me, seems like he is in the strongest position of any manager of the Mexican national team that I can remember, at least in recent memory. Is that... But is that like my ignorance? Am I not paying enough attention? Has he come under fire at all? Have there been any hot water moments? Or for the most part, has it been pretty steady under Tata Martino?
2: No, it's been very steady. And the difference between him and Osorio, who also ran off a really, really long uh, streak of victories, is that the press seemed to like him. They hated Osorio because he did weird things and he was like a tactician that is kind of, you know, he wants to explain himself and kind of talk about why he went three at the back or whatever, which I, you know, I think a lot of us like, you know, Joe, Joe certainly uh, likes to get into that. Right. But, uh, Mm -hmm. but the Mexican press, maybe not. Right. So I think they were kind of felt like they were being talked down to at times with Osorio, which I don't think was the intention, but that was kind of how they read it and uh, they hated him. So even though he was running off these historic winning streaks... They didn't like the guy and it wasn't in the fans, like followed suit, right? And it wasn't until the World Cup when they beat Germany that they're, the fans are then chanting for Osorio, you know, chanting of profe Osorio to uh, the Seven Nation Army tune, you know, and, and that, that just hadn't happened, right? So Martino, I think the press likes him. He's getting results. They lost a friendly to Wales this time around. No one really cares. I think people understand. First of all, there was no forward in that game because Raul Jimenez is still on the mend from his uh, fractured skull. Chicharito not available for this window. And then Pulido and, uh, and Henry Martin took knocks. So they just didn't have a forward, which is uh, a problem because you kind of need that. But uh, they, they played Lozano as a false nine and they played Pizarro as a false nine. Both did kind of – Pizarro didn't do well at all. Lozano did okay. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I think he absolutely has the longest leash of any Mexico manager in a long time. And it's really, really difficult even if they lay an egg at the Nations League and then lay an egg at the Gold Cup, which I don't think – they will, but they could. I think you still see Tata Martino leading them in qualification and you know should be leading them in Qatar.
1: One thing that does, in my mind, tend to lead to a manager getting into hot water, getting some flack from the press, is when certain players are left out, certain players aren't called in, or certain players are maybe relied on too heavily. Is there a player that you think could cause problems for Tata Martino if he didn't call them in, or is there a player that maybe the Mexican press has been okay with so far, but if they make every single team start every single game, they're going to start to have some issues?
2: There's a fascinating... So the, so the player that he probably relies on too much that, that people don't like is Xhaka Rodriguez, the right back from Tigres, who's just a really attacking fullback and not very good defensively. I don't think if he keeps playing him there, nah, I don't think people are going to be too upset. He's also tried some younger uh, varieties. That's not the right word, but some younger options there. The the interesting thing with Martino is that if he continues to have this issue with no number nine, which I, I think is just a quirk, I think it's a fluke, I think they're going to have players in March. But there's two players that are eligible for different national teams that he could call in. They're different situations. One is Funes Mori, the Monterey forward. He has his Mexican citizenship now under the new FIFA rules. He could be called in. Uh, he's Argentine, had a pass through at the Dallas Academy very strangely before the Dallas Academy was what it was, but uh, ended up choosing to go back to Argentina, going to River Plate. And there's been a fixture for Monterrey. Uh, he's a player who I wouldn't be surprised if Martino does call in just because, uh, first of all, I think he likes him and he really fits well with what, uh, with what Osorio does. But also, you know, that Argentine connection can't hurt. Might sip some mate together and uh, and hash it out and figure out what's going on. So it might it might be a situation where Funes Mori gets called in, which could make the press frustrated because he's not Mexican enough, right? The other player is Santiago Ormeño, who plays for Puebla. He kind of burst onto the scene in the last year, two years, even though he's not getting up there, but he's 27, 28. Uh, he's eligible as well for the Peruvian national team. Peru has mentioned that they have um they, they've reached out to him. He's the son of a player who who played in Peru and uh I think he was born or excuse me, who played in Mexico and I think he was born there and, and kind of grown up there. But he's a player who a lot of people wanted to see in this roster, especially because of the injury to Jimenez and the fact that Chicharito wasn't gonna be in this group, can maybe play that number nine spot. I think it's an issue that'll probably pass over pretty quickly because like I said like when are you going to have that happen again that you have Raul injured, Chicharito not available, uh Martin injured, Pulido injured. Like there's going to be four, and, and and Mexico also has Macías, even like Santiago Muñoz who was born in El Paso but was on okay. that that El, that uh 3 champion team, the U23 team. He's only 18. He's playing first team minutes for Santos Laguna like you could see him getting called in for, you know, he's probably going to go to the Olympics instead of a gold cup or something. But like there are forwards in Mexico that Martino can call. So I, I would be surprised. But that, that's kind of the one area where you could see some heat getting on there. But I, I think it'll be fine.
1: So what I'm hearing is Mexico good. Is that about it?
2: That is totally fair. <laughs> Mexico, very good.
1: <laughs> very good. Okay. I should have added that. I apologize. <laughs> uh, final thing. You mentioned the the victorious uh, Mexico team at the CACFU U23 uh, Olympic qualifying. They are the U23 champions. I'm, I'm with you, and then I'm not entirely sure why that game needs to be played, aside from just being able to say uh, we have a champion, but Honduras and Mexico had already qualified for the Olympics. I could not bring myself to watch that game. Uh, I know that you did, so I wanted to ask how it went and when Edwin Rodriguez is going to get his big money move.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. It was a good... I mean, I typically don't think those games are really worth it and uh, I kind of said as much on Twitter but like it it was fun it was really especially in the second half you saw the energy from the players kind of kick into gear some of the modifications the managers made I think were, were were savvy Edwin Rodriguez hit that colossal and then Mexico had a penalty that like initially on the first angle they showed everyone was like ah freaking CONCACAF refs what a joke and then like they showed the reverse angle and it was like oh, yeah, that's a penalty, like 100%. So I think, like, some of the frustration died rather quickly. And then extra time, please stop playing this, especially in youth tournaments. Like, everyone was just tired. So they, they played extra time. Yeah. That's a thing that happened. And then uh, the penalty shootout, right, which Mexico wins by just making every single penalty. So it was fun. I mean, it's like, you know, I, like a lot of times you'll hear managers, especially in Latin America, call something like an exercise, like a friendly, that oh, was a good exercise. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about this. Like the guys got to run run around a bit. I got to enjoy a game of soccer on a on a Tuesday night when I probably would have been doing something else. So I'm not upset about it. So anyway, Rodriguez. Hopefully, he does find a move. I mean, look, if you're MLS, you got to be knocking on the door because this guy, you know, took uh, helped helped Olympia get to the Concacaf Champions League semifinals, blasted in a goal in the, in the U23 final. He's going to play in the Olympics. But you also wonder if he's one of those guys that skips MLS directly and goes to, to another league. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I'm excited to see more of him. I mean, as much as uh, I have seen him on CCL and some, uh, even with the senior team already, he's been called in with Honduras. He's still a player I don't know super well, uh, just because you don't see a ton of the Honduran league, even the top teams. Uh, so anyway, I'm excited to see, to see him. And, and I do hope he gets, like you're saying, a big, big money move.
1: And if he does, we will be sure to have you back on to discuss it. Uh, and I look forward to having you on again to discuss many other things because there are many other things uh, in Concacaf to be discussed almost on a constant basis, it seems. Which then explains again getting Concacaf, John. If people want to subscribe to that or hear more from you, read more from you, how can they do so?
2: Yeah, I've I've just like Concacaf. I've made everything a little more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> the easiest way <laughs> is to just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Arnold, comma John. Spell out comma no H and John. Uh, then you can find the links to everything. If you want to go direct to the newsletter, you're like, I don't have Twitter. Or, I don't want to see that guy's face. That's fine. It's just getconcaft.substack.com. That's getconcacaft.substack.com. One day I'll make a direct link that's just like johnsnewsletter.org or something. But like, I just haven't gotten around to it.
1: And then, are we going to start the hashtag "Get John a jersey"? Is that what we're going to go for to make sure that you get as many uh, nice jerseys as we can find?
2: Nah, listen, listen. I, I, uh, my, I think my, my fiance will be pretty frustrated if that happens. Like, if all of a sudden I get start to get thirty five different shirts, she's gonna be like, "Yeah, you already have too many of these." So, yeah. I, I'm accepting the gifts, but I, I'm certainly not starting the campaign. <laughs>
1: That's. I think everybody at some point has that moment of like, do I have too many jerseys? And their significant other immediately responds with yes. That does seem to be a a, a recurring thing uh, in the soccer community. But for now, John, thank you again for taking all the time to talk with me about Concacaf today.
2: My pleasure. Take care,
1: listeners. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon.